0: Lord make us ready to pray thankfully our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those trespasses against us lead us not to temptation but us from the evil one in Christ Jesus our Lord for thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever amen hey folks Um. okay back to St. Saint- Paul <laughs> Um just as a quick recap, um, we're on we're already on chapters nine and ten. Um like we said from the beginning, Corinthians is a group divided, elites, non-elites, um startup company type people, um, some of them, um, in a newly um established Roman state. And They're really annoying. Um, And Paul (laughs) gets irritated. He loves them. He established them. Um, But there's a lot of in-house fighting. And like we said, this is a lot of the issues that we see in new churches, startup churches. I think those of us in the lands of immigration can particularly relate because most of our churches, all of our churches were startups in recent memory. Um, And a lot of new churches still get established. So the first few chapters was a general St. Paul saying, get over yourselves. Um, and then he had a couple of chapters talking about particular issues. Um, and what he's going to get into in these two chapters, we're going to read them separately in 9 and 10, is what should an apostle, an apostolic life look like? And he's he's not doing it to talk about apostles generally. He's doing it to say... Um, let me tell you what I've done. And this is going to sound really hypocritical because St. Paul has just finished telling them, get over yourself. And then it looks like he's about to give his resume. Um, but there's a reason he's doing it and he gets to it. Um, actually, he gives a better resume elsewhere in his epistles, but <laughs> this one is is different. Um, and And he says, imitate me. And we'll get to that because it, 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 it sounds interesting to somebody who's like, wait a minute, what are you trying to say? Um, and then he's going to come back to the particular issue that he's already talked about because he's, he's worked up, right? So they're fighting about this food issue, about the meat's um, uh, sacrifice to the gods. And for him, it's not just this one issue. It's about how they're dealing with it, how they're arguing about it. So he's given a little bit of an opinion already And so it's almost like he's worked himself up and he's like, no, 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 like this is not how you do church. Let me tell you how you do church, right? So then he gets into that, that's chapter nine. And then he's gonna come back in chapter 10 and say, here's what's messed up, right? Here's a better way of how um, to go about this and how to think. And so I'm really hoping, especially those among you, I think is almost all of you, who serve in different capacities, not just Sunday school, really pay attention to how, St. Paul problem solves and challenge yourself, whether that's how you go about doing it or not. Um, I'm really benefiting from looking at how, how St. Paul, how pastoral he is in um, his way of doing things. Okay, so, um, so you're gonna see the word right um, in this six times uh, in this chapter where Paul is gonna talk about his apostolic rights or authority. The word is exousia, right? So uh, authority. Um, and the purpose of his assertion of rights is going to be to show that he, like the Corinthian elite, had legitimate rights that he can use, okay? Because the elite are, are playing this card. Um, and he's going to ask a bunch of rhetorical questions, right? Like of, of, of questions that... that it would be wiser for them not to answer, or he'll probably rip them apart more. Okay, so chapter 9, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and God, Amen. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to our food and drink? Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a wife, as the other apostles and the brethren of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say this on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope, of his share in the crop. If we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much that if we reap your material benefits, if others share this rightful claim upon you, do we not still more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing this to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me, what woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? just this, that in my preaching, I may make the gospel free of charge, not making full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being without law toward God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I pommel my body and subdue it. Thus, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Um, we'll read um, the 10 when we get to it. Um These ones are harder to read pieces of because Romans, it was like more of a theological letter. So it made more sense to go like piece by piece. Whereas with Corinthians, I'm not sure this is the right way to do it. So we'll figure it out. But so Paul starts off with rhetorical questions. Okay. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? So he's reminding them that some people are saying, oh, Paul's not even a real apostle. Right. So don't forget that he's, he's actually being challenged. Right? So Paul is coming back saying, no, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle by virtue of that I have seen the Lord. Okay? And he's saying, and, and the Lord sent him, but he's actually saying something that, like, is a little bit of a slap in the face to them, if you understand what he means, Um, because he's saying, um, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. It's almost like saying um this is a horrible analogy but it'll work quebec it's one of our provinces in canada for you americans um quebec wanted to to separate okay so imagine if quebec were to separate be recognized as a nation and it has its own prime minister or president okay so the president is saying to them if i'm not a real president that's a problem for you because you're pretending to be a nation." right that's what Paul means by it he's not just saying because i took care of you and because i did this and this he's also saying if you call yourself a church it's because an apostle was sent to you so that's going to be a problem if you don't call me an apostle right so it's it's a it's a very he's he's sharp um he's sharp and he, he knows how to aim for the jugular okay so then he goes and he gives his def- defense and he says don't we have the right to food and drink and then he brings up rights that he doesn't use. He's like, he's like, you know what? Like, if I wanted, I could have a wife, right? These other apostles have wives. And I could have demanded, a, like, to not only to have them, but you guys sponsor her, pay for her, um, care for my trips. He goes, I, I'm not doing that. And he's saying, are you guys going to single out just me and Barnabas and tell us that we're the guys that aren't allowed? Um, how fair is that? Um, and then he goes on to give a bunch of analogies saying, um, a soldier, so a Roman soldier, a Roman soldier lived off of the people because he's working for the people, the civil servant, right? So he's he's actually showing that even in civil law, um, soldiers get money from the people, not the opposite. They don't pay the people. They don't even pay taxes, to my understanding. They would just receive in those days. Um, I'm going to skip. I'm not going to reread all, all of what he said. I'm going to get into what he's trying to say. So. Here he's getting at some fundamental rights that he says an apostle has as a human being, as an apostle. Number one, he's saying the apostle has a right to financial support. Okay. Um, Which is funny because I think a lot of people today might not like that idea. Um, But he's saying that's something that, that they should have entitlement to. He's saying they have the right to spousal companionship if they like. Um, and I think the reason why he's saying that is to make a point that the rights of the apostle are not just financial, okay? Like that, like to not reduce it to just being a, an administrative financial thing. And then he goes and he makes his case almost legally, okay? He goes, okay, I'm not just speaking on my human authority, even though on human authority I could, because nature speaks for itself. He's saying, but this is actually the standard on, and norm of all of society, both secular and religious, Right? That's why he said the soldier doesn't do this. He's, making, he's saying, okay, civil law says this. And then he says and even religious law, because he makes reference to Deuteronomy um, about the priests eating from the food of the temple, right? And that they get tithed by the people. So he's saying, okay, so whether you're Jewish, whether you're a pagan, whatever way you look at, this is a norm. And you guys are trying to make it look like I'm a jerk for taking money. Um, and he goes, which I'm not even taking. And he goes, But well, I'm laying down my right. And again, we're going to see why he's saying all this. And then he even says, and the Lord himself says so. And the Lord did say so. Right? The Lord said, take no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Right? The Lord also said, when you enter in the house, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Right? Um, A farmer or a shepherd got to eat off the land. As a matter of fact, in those days, um, a farmer was a good place to be in in the working force because you got to make food arrangements because the main um, arbiter of, of, of wealth, social wealth or social uh, standard, social class, was your access to food more than it was money. It's actually the access to food mattered more than your access to money. So a rich person typically had access to both, so they were still very prestigious. But that's why a craftsman like Paul is actually lower class than a farmer okay and that's a big deal because he's talking to elites who are looking at paul like he's a peasant like he's a nobody right and he's actually giving them more reason to hate them um by being a tent maker and so he's saying okay even a farmer gets access to the food um and he says okay even in the old testament god said don't muzzle the ox that he can eat and he goes do you really think that God's main concern was the animal or do you think guys, he was trying to teach us something. Um, He's that, that's literally what he's, what he's saying to them. So he, he just, he, he, he makes his point. Okay. This is a big deal, I think, because we tend to want to run anyone who quote unquote serves us right of we pay for this, we do this as though because we support these people, they somehow become our slaves. Okay, and I'm going to come back to that in a in a second. I think all of you servants can probably relate to that too, because I don't even just mean this only financially. Right? But um, St. Paul is employing critical thinking, which I think we lack societally today, in my personal opinion. Um, but to be a critical thinker, you need to be able to identify thoughts, concepts, ways of thinking, not just of your own, but of those with whom you are dialoguing and have some reference to return to. It's so impressive that Paul has mastered this. Right? Like it's it is a big deal that Paul's not just saying, Jesus said so, guys, come on, right? Paul is able to speak every one of their languages as he makes a point later on. Where he's like, no. If you're Greek, you've got this. If you're Jewish, you've got this. If you're neither, you've got this. And even common sense tells you this. So what exactly is your problem, OK? So he's, he's, he's really, 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 really showing um, that they're not going to be able to stand up on, on, on randomness. Sometimes people think, as we said, it's OK to trample on servants. As though they're owed something, the people, not the the servants. Okay. So it's one thing for Paul, for St. Paul, not to assert his rights, right? Which he doesn't do. And he says that he goes, I'm not taking advantage of any of these rights. I'm maintaining that I have them. I'm maintaining that I have them, but I'm not demanding them, but it's a completely different thing for people to refuse people those rights. It's a whole other thing for people to say, we're not going to give you that. You're not allowed to have that. This is like people screaming at servants and Sunday school teachers that they're not doing their jobs well, right, good enough, while not supporting or helping them at all. Right? As though the servant is supposed to magically take their kids and by some magic osmosis, like transfer holiness into them. Right? And then the parents come being like, you guys should have been there later. Where were you when this happened? What did you do? And I'm not saying that there's no obligation of servants. We're not talking about that right now. But I'm just saying that the servant is still relevant. This this issue is still relevant. Um, And sometimes we're on the receiving end of that. Sometimes we're the ones that are on the giving end of that and not recognizing it, right? Where we're screaming justice, bloody murder and all sorts of things um, as though, and not necessarily asking whether that demand is reasonable or right or not and on what basis I'm making that demand. Especially if I'm making demands and not respecting the reciprocal duty I have, right? Where where I'm basically saying, I want the government to fix this and this and this and this and not pay my taxes. That's, That's what's going on here, right? Where it's like, well, where do you want to get the funding from, right? And then say, oh, like, okay. And so this, sorry, I, I don't mean to, to blow up on this, but this happens a lot because I've, I've met people. So first of all, disclaimer, I don't have a church. I don't take money from people. I get whatever allowance I get from my bishop. So there's no plug here for money. So I can speak in good conscience here. There's no personal benefit. But I've heard people say things like um, they want to withhold tithes from church to punish the priest or the service. So it's like, who who are you punishing? You're punishing yourself because it's your community, right? If the church can't pay the bills, that's your problem as much as it is the servant or Abunas, right? If we stop paying our taxes to show some punishment, it's like, okay, don't get upset when the consequences start to show where there's no staff, so they all go home. And then that creates its own problems and there's no construction. There's no whatever, whatever you have, there's going to be a problem, right? I'm not saying don't question the system. I'm not saying where you need to put your money. I'm not saying that people's complaints are never justified. I'm simply saying that if the mentality is I'm going to punish you by not paying tithes, then you've totally missed the point, right? You've totally missed the point. Um, or the opposite, where somebody doesn't want to say it like that, but instead they'll say that they're going to give their money to a particular place because of how that other person is going to use it. That's not intrinsically wrong. But the, but what St. Paul also wants to make clear is, guys, they don't work for you. the The employer is God. Okay? For all of us. We're at the feet of his people, all of us. Priest, servant, like official servant, everyone's a servant, non-official servant, lady, men, woman. We are all supposed to be at the feet of everybody. The boss is God. There are those delegated to a particular task, they have their due, that's due. Okay. So we got to be careful not to think that we're someone else's boss. And I think it's also very important for us to recognize. Like, I I feel badly for St. Paul, right? Whereas St. Paul's like, hey, folks, I had a comfortable life. I've given it all up. Only for you guys to tell me how dumb you think I am, right? He doesn't actually say that. But I can imagine him, like, feeling that way. They're giving up their lives and their time for you. Same thing with your servants and your priests, right? When people would get mad at the servants, I'm like, hi, they're here volunteer. They're volunteers, Are we going to yell at them that they didn't give 90 hours a week? (inaudible) That they're here, right? Whatever anybody's willing to do, God bless, right? We've got to be very careful um, in our sense of entitlement. And St. Paul is exposing their sense of entitlement by telling them what he's entitled to, right? He's like, okay, you're claiming entitlement. Well, I'm technically entitled to, and that's where he's going to be going with his argument. Like, okay, if this is going to be a battle of entitlements, okay, we're all entitled. And then he's going to get to, so what is the right thing to do with entitlement is what he's going to get to. So I think we, we need to reflect, do we have this elitist attitude that St. Paul is tearing apart? Because put in another way, St. Paul is saying, hey, actually, I can sit in the elite clubs more than you. But instead, here's what I do, verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing to secure any such provision. He's making the same disclaimer. He's like, no, no, no. you need to know I have the right to. But I'm not exercising those rights. And I'm not even writing to you to set myself up to then say, now give me money. I'm not doing that. Right? He's like, don't even, don't even think it for a minute. I would rather die, he says. He's a little bit dramatic, than have anyone deprive me of my ground for blessing, for boasting. And says, actually, boasting is not why I preach the gospel. Woe to me. If I don't preach the gospel, what then is my reward? Just this. He's like, reward here is pay. He's not talking about his reward from from God. He's saying, what's my pay? What am I taking in payment? This, just this, simply this. That in my preaching, I may make the gospel free of charge, not making full use of my right in the gospel. Right when our Lord says He's taken, as St. Paul talked about in Romans, He took the foolish things of the earth to be a spectacle to men—the cross. Right, St. Paul's living this too. Remember the the link with the cross, because He's saying what I'm trying to do is make sure that you have no rational reason to doubt this. Because if I made a whole bunch of money, you claim I'm a con artist. Right, so I want to be poor, even though I actually am entitled. the money i don't want it i want no confusion about the merit of the gospel right it's it's a very powerful thing um he hasn't used his rights he's not seeking to use it um even though his colleagues have right the other apostles um and so now he's pointing because he's going to come back to these meat meat eaters right these these big fighters he's saying i want you to know my motive My motive is not me. As a servant of God, my motive is not me. If it was me, I could do a whole lot of stuff that I'm not doing. My motive is the good of the gospel and the salvation of others, period. Right? He's made himself completely um, vulnerable. And that, that decision and its lifestyle... Have now become Paul's ground for boasting. And we're gonna come back to that because he just said to them not to boast. We're gonna come back to that in a, in a minute. So he's saying, okay, I have rights, rights. What do da day. Okay, good for me. I have rights, so do you. But here's the difference, folks. That's what St. Paul's saying to them. I am laying them down voluntarily. Sometimes a servant needs to lay down his rights because of a tough crowd. Even though the servant might have the right to defend him or herself, right? Even though the servant might have a real point in what they're doing, sometimes the servant has to lay down the right just because of the crowd. But here's the key. The servant can look at it as because these people suck, I'm doing this. Right, because they're so rough, or they're mean, or they call me names, or they don't get it, or do what Saint Paul is saying, which is saying that it's for the gospel. It's not the serve, it's not the people that are making bow down, it is the gospel that is calling me to bow down. Right? One is an objective truth, one is on whim, right. And so when you're doing it for something objective, you'll have more, much more peace. I've seen this a lot and it's, it's, it's terrible how difficult people can be. I know a servant, um, I'm just gonna put the person on the left. I'm not gonna say the person's name, but this is a person who um, converted to Christianity from another, an, another religion altogether because of a saint appearing to him that he had never heard of because he wasn't part of that religion. Okay, Now, this person um, serves day and night, to this day, on demand. This person travels to other countries, other states, other provinces, He's saints. Now, what is the first question when anybody hears the story that they ask? Almost everyone's first question. Hmm. Does he take money? Because if the answer is yes, dismiss him because he took money. But if he were to actually not take money, which he doesn't, he doesn't, then the next question is, does he have a job? And if he doesn't, because he's serving day and night, it's like, oh, then he's a freeloader. His spouse must be the breadwinner, and that guy does nothing, and this is just a facade. But then if he works full-time, which he was, and serves less because he now has to be at work for certain hours, now his authenticity is questioned questioned because he's not helping people to the most of his ability. And if I had that access, I would do one, two, three, four, five, you can't please people. And then in fact, people will say when the person's working, oh, people should help him out so that he can serve more effectively. (laughs) But then if they helped him out to serve more effectively, like, oh, but he's taking money. We're a tough crowd, folks. We're a really tough crowd, okay? And, and I'm not doing it to talk about this person. Like, like th- that's not the point at all. I'm saying that this, this example, that like that the living example of St. Paul is so real. It's so real, you can't win, right? Everyone is gonna yell at you for something, right? And so it's the gospel that we come back to. We should learn not only from St. Paul about laying down our personal rights and authority in the service of God, but we also need to not be those rough people that are the Corinthians, right? Of watching, what are our expectations? What are we demanding? What are we yelling? What are we saying? And on what basis? Or are we looking for the work of God in in all things? Um, Now, note also the conviction of St. Paul. He says, woe to me, shame on me if I don't preach the gospel. That might mean nothing to us now because that's like our titan Giddo type, like Western culture comments of shame on you, um, but shame in, in in Mediterranean world is a big deal. Shame shame is is like the honor system is is a really big deal. So Saint Saint Paul is saying I become less honorable as a human being if I don't preach the gospel, right? He's not just saying this cute little like, we a real pity if I didn't. No, he's saying I'd be less a man if I didn't. Right? It's a it's a it's a very powerful statement. That's how real it is to him. As a baptized Christian, you have become an apostle. You are now an apostle. Do we feel that same conviction of preaching the gospel, or are we petrified? Right? Petrified of the kind of conversation Paul is having right now with believers. <laughs> let let alone non-believers like this fight is with the church right this isn't even with with secular society yet um are you afraid of a conversation in which you are on the defense because everyone is yelling at you for what you think or saying because that's become very common these days and so some people will say you know what um rather than use words they'll say things like um i'd rather preach by my actions I'm not mocking that we're supposed to preach by our actions, but I am going to challenge us a little bit. Do you actually do that? Okay. Or is this one of the slogans, like the Corinthian slogans, right? Like all things are lawful. Right. And you're like, preach by deed, not by word. Um, And you're like, okay, cool beans, bro. But um, sometimes the situation, demands speech, but let's pretend that you really do. do you really do that? Because if you do, then my questions would be, and I'm challenging me on this, not just you, do you feel distressed if you've participated in gossip or in inappropriate language or jokes? Do you feel that urgency about preaching the gospel through your actions? Do you feel distressed if you judge someone? Do you feel the urgent need if you've messed up to make a corrective in front of others when you haven't preached the gospel by what you're doing. Cause if you don't, then your preaching by deeds might actually just be a cop out. No offense. Okay. Because if it really was your genuineness of, I want to preach the gospel and my calling is preach the gospel, but I just really want to do it by my actions, then you would actually feel that urgency and you would actually do it and you would actually correct. Now it looks like what Saint Paul has been saying to them is what he's doing this whole boasting thing. So we'll come to that now. But he's not. Verse nineteen: For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became a Jew; toward the Jews we've all read this before. To those outside the law, I took on the law; I took, I got rid of the law. To those with the law, I became as law. To the strong I was strong. To the weak I became weak. I became all things to all men that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Paul's not showing off. Paul is saying, I'm imitating Christ. And in imitating Christ, what I'm doing is my duty. I'm not doing something extra. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, what you're supposed to do. Um, It's not, um, look how good I am. Because Christ emptied himself for the sake of all. So let's come back to Paul for a second. As we said earlier, manual labor was associated with slaves. And Paul's a tent maker. So Paul's manual labor. So manual labor is associated with slaves, and it's completely disdained by like these Roman Greek uh, elite squad. So Paul is doing two things. He's working with his hands, and he's renouncing financial support from the whole church, both at the same time. And that would have got him so much criticism. It's almost like, um, you guys all know that priests get paid. Imagine if you got a priest who like his galabaya is like his, his cassock is completely ripped up. Um, there's holes in his socks. Um, he like smells badly because he couldn't pay the water bill. Okay. And then he's coming and preaching on Sundays. And he's preaching in like downtown Toronto in a rich area, right? Or Beverly Hills. And the congregation are all like, how did we get this guy? Like, is he not culturally aware? Um, Does he need someone to pay his water bills? We can get his water bill if it'll make him shower. Okay. And another person is like, Abuna, we got it. Don't worry. We're we're gonna we're gonna sow your galabaya. Paul is actually being extreme here, right? Other apostles are like, okay, thanks. That's so nice of you. And they're allowed to. And Paul is making a point. They're allowed to. And he's saying, I'm not. I'm not, because I want you to have nothing um, that I am indebted to you for. So that you not for a moment question the motive that I'm here for that nobody says you're in Beverly Hills because you wanted to score big time because they're the rich elite. He's Like I will not take your money. I'd rather die. I'd rather take from somewhere else because I'm going to imitate what Christ did because Christ thought his equality with God, as he says in Philippians, not a thing to be um, a better translation. Some people have handled, Um, exploited and emptied himself and took the form of a slave new bible versions have cleaned it up because of modern uh, language and sensitivities and say the form of a servant it says slave he took the form of a slave okay in the roman understanding the meaning and so paul saying i'm doing that even though i have this apostolic right to be up here I'm coming to you down here to the point that you're embarrassed that a tent maker comes to your church, but I will do that. I will do that for the sake of the gospel. Um, so he's not, he's not showing off now. I just want to comment um, uh, a little bit on that I have become all things to all men because I, I I've seen people really not use this thing. Right. Um, when St. Paul says he becomes all things another way of saying that is to say that he put on the mind of all groups okay not that he becomes it okay in the modern sense of becoming it because he didn't go become a Gentile and pretend to be a Gentile to win over Gentiles in fact, in the book of Romans, he was like, guys, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. Right? he am like, no, come on, guys. Let's all be friends. I'm a Jew. You're a Jew. I'm also a Gentile. Let's all sing kumbaya." No, he's like, I'm, I'm a Jew. Okay? Um, he doesn't pretend to be lawless. He doesn't pretend to um, be strong or weak. What he did is he entered into their language. It's incarnational. It's like how God became man even though he is God and remained God, okay? He put on the full experience of humanity and crucified himself for our sake. That's what St. Paul is doing. That's why he's not boasting. He's saying, no, I'm doing as my master taught. So if a servant thinks it's okay to go out to a party where everyone's getting trashed and says, I'm becoming all things to all people. um, I'm sorry, you're you're not. Um, You're just going out to a party where people are trashed. If you say that and you're selective in your service toward whom you would like to serve, you're actually the opposite of Paul. Saying things like, me and those people just don't click. I'm not saying there's no merit to that in service, organization, etc. But if you are actively saying, I become all things to all men but specifically just to like this group of people, no, you're not, you're not, you are not living the life of the cross. You're just doing what's comfortable. Okay. Um, In today's language, becoming all things, in in my opinion, it's just meditation. It's not authoritative. I think it means understanding the skeptic, the feminist, the pro-abortionist, the existentialist, the humanist, the LGBT mindset, it's understanding them, not becoming them, understanding them. What are their perceptions? How do they view things? What is their approach to truth ration logic? Right. Um, It's understanding the pressures of the people you serve. What is their lifestyle look like? Right. I know a monk who like for 20 years had no phone because there were no phones right? So suddenly when he had a cell phone, he had in his mind, like, oh, I can call people whenever, not having this understanding that people go to work, right? Um, and so I'm saying that being like, like little things like that, you need to understand the mindset of the people with whom you're interacting, and how you're treating them, what you're demanding from them, what you're asking, um, the, the philosophies that pervade the education system and the work environment. Um, so when a person speaks to you, you get where they're coming from, right? You understand what they're saying, even if you don't agree, but you get it, right? That's, that's what he's calling for. There's a lost art in my view of dialogue these days, okay? Everybody just wants to debate. But the goal that St. Paul is saying is that by all means you save some, not by all means you defeat them it's by all means you save them, okay? Which means that we as Christians, no matter what the world is doing, we are called to dialogue. And to dialogue means understanding, it means sacrificing, it means cruciform living. Now, to understand the weak, and here the weak is referring specifically to the non-meat eaters in this whole debate that they're having, okay? In modern language, it's your pro-mystere and anti-mystere people. Okay, I'm not going to enter that debate. I'm just saying that's the kind of language that's being used here when he says the weak. Um, Most people favor the strong in this argument because they tend to be louder and appear more intelligent. But what St. Paul is saying is, no, actually, I get it. I get these non-meat eaters. I get it. I get where they're coming from and what they mean. Break yourself for the gospel's sake, not for your own. If you walk away from the gospel every time anything gets difficult, you're not about the gospel, you're always about you. It's that simple. Crucify yourself. That's the message of Corinthians. Give yourself for the life of the world, as the Lord did. Not for your own self-preservation. The letter couldn't be more countercultural for our own times, if he tried. Right. This is the complete opposite of of our society, Um, including in church these days. I'm not just talking about secular. I mean, even within the church these days, Um, the knowing you have a right. But laying it down is the highest form of this cruciform living. It's what God did. Right. He who has all authority putting himself under the authority of men, right? That the Lord of the temple became servant of the temple and let himself be abused. Then he says, do you not know that we run in a race, all, that, that in a race all runners compete, but one receives the crown. So remember he's talking to the Corinthians that have the games that are second only to the Olympics. So he's actually drawing an allusion to something. Local. That's, that's just how much St. Paul gets them, right? He's, he's giving them an analogy from the local community being like, you guys go to the games, right? Probably St. Paul himself went to the games, right? And he's saying, look at them. They're racing for like dried up celery because some of the wreaths were made out of that, right? That you're putting on your head as a crown, right? Or some other plant on your head that's a crown that's gonna wither and die. He's saying, guys, we're racing for something way bigger, right, we're racing for this imperishable crown that isn't made out of celery. (laughs) Like, come on guys. Right. He's like, he's, he's, he's real. And he says, and for this reason, I palm on my body and I subdue it. Oh, and just quickly, I, I'm not going to spend time on it. When he says I'm not beating at the air, he's giving a boxing illusion for those of you who don't realize what he's saying. He's saying that if a boxer wants to know how to box, he's not going to fight the air. How is he going to train fighting the air? Right. There's no resistance. There's no strength. There's no skill. He's saying, no, I don't fight the air. I'm fighting something real right? So there's there's, there's that. Um, I'm not going to spend a long time on asceticism because I could go there, but I won't. Um, chapter 10. This chapter is of monumental importance. I'm going to, instead of reading the whole thing in a row, I'm sorry, I'm going to read pieces, explain, read pieces and explain just for the sake of time. Um, but first, Paul wants the Corinthians to reconsider the issue of idolatry. This is so big. I never picked up on this when I wasn't studying and studying it before. Um, because to me, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah those, those Romans, some of them were converts. Paganism is a big deal. Idolatry is a big deal, but he's actually not saying that here. He's actually taking it way further. Um, He is actually hoping that they'll be open to some self-examination, now that he's shown them how unethical they are, that they might realize that they're still idolaters. And he's going to explain what real idolatry is, and that even the Jews that are there among them as Christians have become idolaters. So I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same supernatural food, and all drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things are warnings for us not to desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to dance. We must not indulge in immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put the Lord to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as a warning, but they are written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. So, St. Paul is saying, "You're not immune to idolatry, idolatry And his going to the story of the Exodus, the wilderness, the golden calf, the grumbling, um, this narrative that he's got combining pieces of Exodus, numbers Deuteronomy, right? He's pulling from all three, is saying that even you who are in this church, whether you become descendants of Israel through your conversion or you already were descendants of Israel you're not free from idolatry because he's referring to israelites the people of god as idolaters and this is really neat before even getting into what he means by that i think first of all it's, it's really cool to me just as an aside to see how saint paul reads the bible right that like this is not just a saint paul saying a message saint paul reads the bible and saint paul's meditating out loud and using it and applying it to their own context Right and saying, we're like them. He's looking at the history of God's salvation and applying it to them. It's very, very cool um, to learn from the apostles how they read the Bible um, and, and ways that they, that they applied. But anyway, Paul's making huge points here. And these are points that I think many of us could take to heart. He says, the Israelites had every kind of miracle. He said, every kind of miraculous, spiritual, supernatural experience that you can think of water from a rock, pillar of light at night, this cloud during the day. Like He's like, no, they got souped up. They drank water from a rock, which he explicitly says is Christ, which is a big deal. But anyways, um, he goes, but they were still rejected in their own time by God for their idolatry. And so St. Paul's saying, guys, God hasn't changed. God is still a jealous God. Okay, jealousy in its truest form, not in the socially negative way that we understand it today. Like, let's say, how could you say God is jealous? Jealous means to have this protectionism, a sense of possession, a proper sense of possession over something. So, a true parent should be jealous over his or her child. That is their child, that nobody harms their child. Right? A true spouse should be jealous over his or her spouse, that nobody defiles, or takes, or, 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 or does something wrong to their spouse. So are saying God is still this way. So this concept that you can turn to, to idolatry, to immorality, while still proclaiming to be the people of God, St. Paul is saying, is ludicrous. This is so big. The people of God had all the rituals that we have. And it didn't save them didn't make them special people they did all the same wrong things that everyone else in the world was doing they were no different it didn't mean anything in the end because they weren't the end they weren't the goal it was always god and the salvation of all humanity the unity with god it was always that so saint paul is saying that the old testament jews fell into idolatry and immorality and now saint paul is reminding them that the corinthians that they're doing the exact same thing. So now I'm turning it back on us. Do you think you're saved because you partake of Eucharist? Do you think it's okay for us to feed our sexual addictions, our lust, our anger, our striving, our pursuit of wealth, the American dream, whatever, as long as we participate in some magical ritual celebration on Sunday where you line up six... Feet apart now, if you wake up early enough, that that somehow makes you special and different and saved. St. Paul is saying historically that never went well, no matter what your stripe was, because he's saying that even among those of the people of God, they were rejected because of their desire for evil. Their problem was their desire for evil. That's scary. I've desired evil. I still desire evil right? This is the seeds of the roots of idolatry, wanting to adore that which is not good instead of that which is good. That's idolatry. Idolatry is to take something out of its natural order and put it in a supernatural place above nature. That's idolatry. That's why it's so easy to fall into it. Um, idolatry and immorality are the two things that most rip us away from Christ. Because they most test our faithfulness. They most have test our willingness to stay in the relationship. That's faithfulness. I'm not talking about faith, I'm talking about faithfulness. So I don't want to sermonize here, so I won't. I would just say confront yourself about how seriously you take, not desiring evil. I think we could do very well to, as St. Paul said, pummel our bodies, bring our bodies under subjection. Therefore, verse 12, that anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted to beyond your strength, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. I want to spend some time here because of how I think not used properly. Also, this verse is, it's one of it's a lot of people's favorite verse. It's one of mine. Um, but I think it's used wrongly. Um, and when used wrongly, it could lead a person to atheism. Um, so, because most people look at this and say, oh, St. Paul is saying there's no trial that you're going to get that's, not, that's bigger than you, and if, because God's not going to let you have it. And if he does, he's going to give you an escape. And so many people are like, actually, I actually really can't handle what I got. So this is bogus. Right? So here what he's saying is, put it in its context. Here's your history. Here is Israel's history. The person who kept things going, the person who was faithful, the person who rescued Israel, is God. It wasn't the Israelites, Israelites' wit or intelligence that saved them from Egypt. It was God. God, when he moves someone, when he moves someone, Provides the help and the grace. God in relationship can deliver and free, but humans cannot. So he says to the Corinthians, St. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, nothing you're going through is foreign. Okay, that's There's no temptation such that isn't common to man. He's saying there's nothing that you have that's not for everybody. You're not anything special. This isn't new. Okay, there's nothing new about your situation or your warfares. The same is true today. Atheism isn't new. Sex isn't new. Homosexuality isn't new. Drugs aren't new. Lying is not new. There is nothing new. There are no new temptations. There can be new, like, um, or more advanced forms of application of them, but the temptation isn't new. Okay? So that's the first part. There's no temptation such as common to man. But if you are in a real faithful relationship with God, Or, to use this analogy that he's been using of the ancient Israelites, if you're saying yes to the Exodus, right? you're one of the people of God saying, yeah, I want to be one of your people. Um, I've entered covenant. I'm one of the Israelites. He's saying that God will be faithful to you. Because you're in this marriage. He's saying, so God will deliver you in that context. So if God says, I'm telling you, get out of Egypt. He's not like, I told you guys to go. It's not my fault you didn't run fast enough. He's like, no, because I told you to go, I'm I'm opening up the Red Sea. Because I told you to go, I'm putting a pillar of light. Because I told you to go, I'm putting a cloud to guide you. So it's not a generalized, God does all these things to us and then yells at us if we didn't make it. It's saying that in this context of relationship, in this context of covenant, the Lord is faithful even when we're not, even when we're not, right? Which is the whole book of Romans. Um, if the Israelites wanted to stay in Egypt, they could have. They could have. God wouldn't have forced them. But he's saying, I'm telling you to go to, Isra- to leave Egypt, and if you trust me, I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up, um, we sometimes ascribe temptations that we have as though they came from God. And then we yell at him for giving us something that we're not able to bear when the Lord didn't necessarily have anything to do with it, right? And then we get really worked up and then we pull out verses like this and say, come on, man, Um, and, and, and we're not getting the answer that we want. So Paul's point here is not to make a beautiful poem about how God's going to hook you up. Actually, the context is saying God is always faithful, but you're not. And be careful, because if you're not, you can be cut off. Check yourself not to be an idolater. It's actually not a a touchy-feely happy uh, um, (laughs) meeting on, on, um, on this one. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, partners in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay. So here he's saying the Lord has complete autonomy and authority over his body, being the church. Um. There's a lot going on here. I'm not going to touch most of it because he's going to go into more detail about it in chapter 11. So I'll save the, the, the major discussion for, for there about the, about the body of Christ and discerning the body. Um, suffice it to say for now, St. Paul is clearly saying that the Lord's body is not, is not just the physical elements of Eucharist that we consume. But it's also the whole communion of believers. Eucharist becomes the uniting point of the head with the body. And we are the body. So Eucharist is actually a unity of all believers, not just of you and God. Okay, that's a majorly important thing, especially with many of us who talk like, um, it's between God and me, sorry, but it's not actually. For now, it's important to say that St. Paul is getting into this meat argument. He come back, he's now come back to it in a deeper way. So he said earlier that what you buy at market, it's not really a big deal, theoretically. Right? He's like, yeah, it's just meat, whatever. But now he's talking about something deeper. He said that though their idols aren't real, and he's not taking that back, he's saying that behind the idol is something demonic. So here he's actually coming in to weigh in with the so-called weak group and saying, no, they have a point. They have a point. You're right that it's just meat. You're right that those gods aren't real, but they're right because there is something demonic going on here. Right. Um, And in participating in a sacred meal offered to an idol on some level, you're actually being anti-Eucharistic because the pagans have their own meals for the gods. Right. The Christians had a meal and the, and the pagans had a meal and he's saying, you can't participate in both or you might actually be being idolatrous. So now he's saying about going to their parties and having the food in their house is what that must be referring to. So you can't, for example, just go into a Hindu temple and say. No big deal. They're just statues. You can't. It's very politically incorrect for me to say that today. But the premise of Christianity is that there is a true God. And so, yes, as a Christian, I do believe that whatever is behind such um, uh, statues is demonic. Even though the statue to me is just rock, marble, whatever it's made out of. I do believe that. In the same way that other religions believe that I'm wrong. It's not wrong for me to assert that I believe or don't believe something. And so we've got to be careful with that. It's true that they're statues, but what works behind it is not the worship of the true God. To participate in this is what the ancient Israelites did. They actually practiced idolatry. They offered up prayers to demonic gods, even though they were just statues. So St. Paul's being really smart here, right? Like he's, he's, he's tying everything together. The Bible is a very living thing to him. It's not an academic book on the side that he pulls from when he needs Right. He's like, no, look at this. He goes, this is what our own people did. And so when you enter their sacred meal, he's saying, so if you go to that offering, if you do any of these things, you've entered into kanunia, community with that deity. You've now had communion with something demonic. The idol is just an object, but behind it is a demon. It's counter-worship. And he's like, and that's why the Israelites were punished. And he's saying, and same thing will happen to us if we decide to run after other gods. So now St. Paul is saying to the elite, even though you had a point, so do the so-called weak. And now he returns back to their slogans, the we can do whatever we want slogans, the all things are lawful slogans. He comes back more forcefully than before and with some new qualifications on it. All things are lawful, air quote, but not all things are helpful. Remember, that was his counter slogan. All things are lawful, not all things build up, counter slogan. Now he's going to add the new qualifications. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord and everything in it, air quotes, one of their slogans. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, unbelievers, and you are disposed to go, you feel like going, go. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, Then out of consideration for the man who informed you and for conscience sake, I mean his conscience, not yours, do not eat it. For why should my liberty be determined by another man's scruples? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So, his counter slogans were that not all things are beneficial and not all things build up. So, that is to say, not all deeds are acts of love. Because love seeks the benefit of others and to build them up. Okay, and we're going to get deep into that in in chapter 13. But these extra maxims are, don't seek out your own advantage, but that of the other. This is instruction. This is not just rehashing. This is how we're supposed to think. Am I seeking the advantage of the other person or my own? Am I doing everything for the glory of God? Am I looking for the salvation of all? And then I should have, end to, I should have ended the section, chapter 11, which we're going to get to in a few verses. We're going to take 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Is it imitating Christ? Those are his four conditions. Okay, Now, St. Paul is now not talking about the market, okay? He's not talking about going to, like, Loblaws or Zares or Trader Joe's and getting halal meat, okay? Which is the equivalent to some extent, because halal meat is is just strangled in a certain way and prayed over, okay? So he's like, if you want to buy halal kosher, it's cheap on sale, go for it, all power to you. Right now, what he's talking about is you're at someone's house who's not a believer, And they've offered you food that may have been part of that event. Saying, if they say nothing, do your thing. Don't worry about it. Just eat. But once someone has said something, now there's meaning involved. Don't eat. Because now it means something to them. Right. In their saying, oh, by the way, this was for the gods. Now there's an evaluation of your response. Right. So now somebody has actually said. By the way, you're a Christian. Do you know that this was offered to the gods? Right. It would be like the Muslim being like, so what do you think about eating halal foods? Right. I offered you halal food. I'm intentionally telling you this is halal. So now it begs the question of why did they tell me that? What does it mean to them that they've offered me halal foods, right? So for example, if I were a priest and and some Hindu person came into the church who doesn't know anything about Christianity, and I said, hey, come up for communion, you guys would be able to say to that person, yo, it's a big deal that you got given communion because communion means something in Christianity. The Hindu visitor might not know, but you knew. Right. So St. Paul is saying, now that they've said something to you, they've made a point of telling you this, by the way, comes from a pagan offering See now, don't do it. There's meaning now, now it's not just a question of some statue. Now is a question of your participation. Now you might be participating in something that shows that you are doing an act of worship in their view. And he said that, he goes in their view. I was like, and therefore, no. I think our generation doesn't think enough about the meaning of things anymore. We tend more to assess utility over meaning, right? So you might look at the situation and say, I'm hungry, I wanted food, so I ate. This food served a function, right? St. Paul is saying once you've said something or done something, it means something. I'll give some modern examples to drive a point home. I get asked often about attending a gay marriage. I'm not going to answer that. But what I usually ask the person to do is to think about what does your participation mean to help guide your answer to it? Is going a sign of assent? So, for example, in an Orthodox marriage, the people say "oxios." They say worthy. They're actually giving assent to the marriage as part of the actual ritual. That's why it's an actual response. It's not just we burst out in song and start singing "oxios." No, it's an actual congregational response to say "oxios." Okay? So, is it a sign of assent? Because then do you assent? Is it participation? There needs to be guiding questions. Or should I get a tattoo? Because tattoo in the 90s had a social meaning very different than it does today. So did a piercing. It it socially signified a certain kind of meaning. Right? It was where it wasn't just like a oh, what's the big deal? I want to put a hole in my ear. Or like, what's the problem? I want a different colored section of my skin, right? No, there's a a question of of meaning. What is a tattoo? What is the piercing? So I'm not answering that, but we need to consider the meanings and we need to be thinking about others more than ourselves. We tend to emphasize how others should accommodate us. Just listen to the radio, right? Why don't you be you and I'll be me? Um, you don't have to cry, cry, cry. You don't have to Um, you're beautiful just the way you are, and and all that kind of stuff. We're all about like you're you, you're beautiful, you're your best, you're whatever. Cool. There might be some merits on those things, but we have this this sense of they need to they need to know that I'm good, right? They need to fix themselves according to me. And Saint Paul's saying the exact opposite because Christ are the exact opposite, saying no, you should accommodate others. The way of thinking here is not as legalistic as most of you would like sometimes. So many people come to me and they just, give me a rule. What's the rule about dating? What's the rule about clubbing? What's the rule about alcohol? What's the rule about this? And Paul is not even going there. Paul is actually liberating them by teaching them a way of thinking them rather than giving them the thoughts or the commands. If we say, here's an easy rule, never drink, then we're creating a problem. Because objectively, alcohol isn't itself wrong. So if I give a maxim of all drinking is wrong, then I might go out to a house for a celebration and they want to raise a toast, right? You, you might be in the situation. And then you give an angry look and tell them, no, oh, they're filthy, disgusting sinners and because I'm a servant of God um, and all this, this stuff, right? And you've entered in this culture where it's like, we're not getting trashed. We're not getting wasted. This is literally like a third of a cup that we use to toast. I don't, I'm not really into that. I'm just using it as an example. Um, You've offended them in the name of morality that wasn't even based on a truth. It was based on a rule. That's not even a real rule, right? It doesn't make sense. Instead, learn how to think. Whereas at the same time, personally, I might suggest that servants shouldn't drink alcohol in front of youth. That's just my own personal opinion because culturally it can give a wrong meaning Right. To a certain age group. Some people can handle some don't. I don't know all of your communities, So I'm not setting out a maximum for anybody here. I'm simply saying in, in, in places I've seen it could be, it could be destructive. So it's the way of thinking rather than being mandated what to think. Okay. Finally, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please all men in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. At the same time, he's saying, to forward his argument, don't go out of your way to irritate others. Okay? You don't need to make a point. You don't need to go out of your way to aggravate people. You don't need to yell at people. We could all do that advice today. And in fact, please, please them in so far and in so much as you can, just not at the expense of the gospel. Use yourself, your mind, your rights, your thoughts, your everything for others. You desire, your desire should be the salvation of all, not just yourself and so what he's saying is guys this chapter that i've been telling you about myself i had a point i'm telling you about myself because i learned it from the lord who is god who did this he's the objective truth this is how we must be and there has to be some salvific some salvation based intentionality that we practice You must live intentionally he's saying the power of living intentionally is not to be taken lightly challenge yourself for a week whether or not you live for others whether you know why you do something whether the why is right whether the why glorifies god as the creator as the intentioner or if it's for others or only for yourself because the key to cruciform living is to realize your will and then to dedicate the will to the truth rather than to yourself. Cruciform living gives life to others and one finds life through that death, through that cruciformity. It is as St. Paul said, foolishness to others, but to us it is glorious because it is based on the truth of resurrection, which is Christ to him be glory forever and ever, amen. That's the end of this section. Um next week is disorderly men and women in the church, so fun stuff, controversial stuff. Um, any uh, questions? I saw one that had come up while I was in it. I answered it while I was doing it, so um I think it was answered to that person. If not, feel free to follow up um, no problem. um would God give a promise, and if yes, what if I feel that I cling to God and follow him waiting on his promise, for instance to have a child or a wife that someone loves, for that to be considered an idolatry? What if I feel that I would not worship God if it does not fulfill um, his promise? Um, What I'm worried about in this question that's not clear to me, if you could clarify, is whether God actually made that promise, right? It's one thing for you to make some deal and assume that God said yes to it, another thing for God to have made a promise because if God gives his word, he keeps his word. God did never, never, ever reneges on his word. Um, I think sometimes though, we might, we might have put um, a promise on, on God's mouth. Um, the other part of your question though, about a, a wife or a child or someone being idolatrous. Yes, that is, that that's a real thing. Um, and I think it's a common thing where, where, It is, like I said, idolatry is to take something from its natural order and put it out. So if your family comes before God, I know how horrible that sounds. That's idolatry. Um, Because you've now put the absolute standard family instead of the source of family. Right? Right. So for example, when our Lord says, unless you love me more than, or put in the opposite, unless you hate, father, mother, brother, sister, you're not worthy of me. Hate means not choose. Just again, to be clear on that. It doesn't mean despise, reject in that that language. He's saying, choose God first. Always choose God over family. Why? Because he designed it. He made it. Right? So for example, if you were to take a car and insist on using it as a boat, you're going to have problems. You have to bow to the maker of the car because of how he made the car. You can't try and make a car a boat. So, I mean, it's, it's a facetious example to make my point of just simply saying that it's not because of an opinion and it's not because of a mood of God. Right. Like, it's not like God's like, oh, I just I feel sad when you like your family more than me. He's like, no, I love family. I made it. I told you to have it. <laughs> I'm just saying, understand it. Don't use it the wrong the wrong way. Um, and so I can I can have a child or a wife or something become idolatrous. Right. And so that's why I have to be careful of what is the objective of everything? What is the objective of your marriage? What is the objective of your parenthood? As St. Paul said, it must be, according to the designer, it has to be to, subject to the truth. It's a good, very, very astute question. Um, thank you for that. It is, uh, sorry. What about visiting? Oh, there's some up here, my badness, guys. Sorry, let me scroll up. On the topic of preaching by my actions, am I judging someone that I do not agree with their actions or their, um, or their language I try to get them to change the behavior and I fail. Would I be judging them if I simply choose to stay away from them? No, I think that's like the cultural, um, cliche stuff these days of, oh, you're just judging me. We're either judging or we're not. Right? So if I note a behavior that I disagree with, I'm not judging a person. Right. I might be, but not because I notice the behavior. Right. So, for example, uh, the example that I, again, I, 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 I overuse. And I think this will answer the whole of your question. So I'm going to use it again, forgive me for those who have heard it a million times. Is that every sin is an illness. Every single one. Okay. So as a former pharmacist, if I saw a patient coming on a wheelchair and I noted that they were handicapped, I have not judged the person. Right, I have simply observed a fact. Right, Or, in spiritual terms, I might know that somebody has lied. It's just a fact. Right, I'm not saying they're a liar, I'm not saying they're a bad person, but I know that they lied. Regardless of their intention, their motive, blah, 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 I'm not assessing that. I'm simply saying, what I'm hearing right now is not the truth. That's not the same as judging. Now, let's say to use a spiritual analogy by using physical handicaps. If I'm in a room and I know that somebody's in a wheelchair, if I sit in like, my ha, ha, ha wheelchair, ha, ha, okay, there's something messed up with me spiritually if I'm doing that, okay? Which is its own disease, to be honest with you. But if I do that, that's wrong, okay? Especially because if I'm paying attention, I might notice that, yeah, I'm kind of lacking an arm. I'm handicapped too, right? And there's another person in the room, right, who might be have both arms and both legs functional, but they are really short. What God is saying is, um, can you guys put uh, hang the picture up? So I have to navigate how me with my lack of an arm with this person who's a little bit shorter and this person who's on the wheelchair, what are we gonna do to get that picture up? How do we work together with all of our collective strengths and weaknesses? And so a better way to work would be to work with each other's strengths while being cognizant and aware of how our weaknesses may affect the situation. Not to look for the weaknesses, that's wrong. Not to sit there calling out the weaknesses, that's wrong. Right? Not to evaluate the value of any person in the room, that's wrong. But to work together now to answer the last part of your question to choose to stay away from them sometimes that's the right thing to do because let's say the person on the wheelchair has some impulse and that person is going around in circles and circles and circles and circles dangerously as fast as they can in a very small space it's dangerous for me to be in there right it's dangerous actually for me to be in there But I'm now walking away, not because I think the person's bad. I'm just saying this isn't safe for me because I don't possess the gift that helps stop that. Someone else does, right? Someone else wants to go right in there and say all the right things and do all the right things to calm that person down and fix it. But I'm not that I'm getting out. But now when I'm getting out, I need to be very clear about one thing. I'm walking out because of my weakness, not because of my strength, right? That I'm not walking out saying, because these people are so bad, I'm leaving. It's saying, because I I I lack this virtue, it's better for me to walk away. And to really believe that, that way you won't have any negativity towards the people or judgment towards them. I hope that clarified. Um, how do you get rid of the desire of evil? slash lust slash anger. Um that could easily be at least one talk, if not a whole retreat, if not more. Um, so the short, the short answer would be to learn how to give your will to others. Because lust, anger, evil generally, but especially lust and anger, are inordinate self-gratifications. Right? That's why the desert fathers teach us to to fast is that when you get um, used to indulging anything you want, um, you become more lustful, more angry, and they actually usually lump in sleep in there. They say that a person with lust often also is angry and 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 sleeps a lot because they, they they self-indulge. And the fasting here, I'm not only talking about food, but I'm also talking about food. But it's also about a practice of not letting your will be gratified in general, not having your way um, there's lots of exercises that can be given from that. Um, what about visiting historical sites such as mosques and temples? Where do you draw the line with sightseeing while travel and being adulterous? Yeah, sightseeing is completely different because you're not participating in a in a worship ceremony, right? You're not, you're, you're, you're not. For example, like I would have no problem. I'm not a parent, thank God, because kids would suffer. But I don't know. I probably let my kids go to native reserve to visit. I don't know if I would allow them to participate in native ritual ceremony. Like, like there's, there's, there's a difference. Right. And that's why what I'm saying is that the guiding question, rather than me putting a rule, the guiding question is what is the meaning? What is the meaning of my participation or my visit? Um, And that's why St. Paul is saying you have liberty. You really do. You really do just figure out what it means and go from there. Okay, now I'm caught up on those. Um, I believe God and family are not exclusive. Why should one choose one over the other? Oh, I'm not saying to choose them one over the other. What God is saying is that when they're in contest, that you choose right. So, for example, if you, I'm. This is. I'm sorry. I'm going to get really real, and I know this is a controversial one. Forgive me. Let's say your daughter comes out to you and says, you either have to be okay with my, with my actual homosexuality versus being okay with me as a human being, which of course you would be okay. Being okay with, with, with a practicing of homosexuality or I'm cutting you out of my life. I am mean an example, because I've seen that really happen. Okay. And so if you say, well, okay, I'm going to choose my daughter. Hmm. Is that right? Right. Whereas, whereas you could tell your daughter, why are you making me choose? Why can't I love you and disagree with something and also love my God? Right. But the reason why it matters is because parenting only has meaning because God is parent. That's the only reason parenting has meaning. Otherwise, whatever you're doing as parenting is completely arbitrary and completely aimless. Who decided what right parenting is? Who decided what the right way to raise your child is or isn't? As far as I'm concerned, it's all made up. Right? And so parents are trying to teach their children truth. But do you believe in truth? Right? Um, So God is not trying to pit people against their families. He's simply saying, love truth more. Because truth governs everything. That's what he's trying to say. Um, and that's why if he thought family was bad or wanted to be in competition, he'd never have made it. He could have kept Adam on his own and said, chill with me, dog. But he didn't. Right. He was like, it's not good for you to be alone. Here's your lady friend. Go have fun, kick it, work, have a blast. I'm with you. Right. So, um, they're not meant to be against each other. Um, I hope that that answered, how can we determine whether or not we are living for others? Without being deceived to think that we're actually living this way. Also, where is the line between our cruc- crucifying our will and pursuing our goals, interests, and or preferences? Those are tough. Um, again, I really am a big fan of people um, self-accusing. And accusing has such a negative connotation today, and I don't mean it in, the, in a mean way. Um, it's from, uh, I'm hoping maybe during Lent this year to do a book study on Dorotheus of Gaza. Um, but there's a whole chapter on self-accusation. Um, and, and he's a riot. He's a, he's one of the funniest desert fathers, like in the books, but, um, he's got good stories and he's funny. But one of the exercises he gives is to regularly challenge ourselves, right? Of where am I doing this thing? Um, what did I really mean? What did I really want? Right. And it's not it's not meant to be mean or angry. Like it's meant to just help us identify our biases and our and our and our shortcomings. So the 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 exercise of spending some time with oneself in reflection and self-accusation, I think, would be very helpful in determining whether it's for others or not. And also keep in mind that it's not wrong that something also be good for you. It's simply saying don't make this only a pursuit of self. Right? So it isn't wrong if you want something. That's not intrinsically wrong. Right? It's not intrinsically wrong that you benefited from something and that you liked something. But there's just always that question of, am I always actively looking for the good of all or just for me? Okay? So there's that question. the line between crucifying our will and pursuing our, our, our goals. Um, The crucifixion comes when the will is in contradiction with what's right. It's not crucifixion just for the sake of crucifixion. Right? So for example, God did not become incarnate because he thought it would be a fun mission trip to humanity right like he didn't like oh i got the best idea i'm gonna become man and then they're gonna kill me it's gonna be so cool right no right it was it was man's will and behavior that necessitated the incarnation and that god gave his will up for man right and said i will give i will give myself for the life of the world right so the issue is about when 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 they're in conflict with truth, so that you don't walk around conflicted. God wants us to have a good time. God's not walk, looking for us to be miserable, right? He, he said, have a good time, I, I made it. The earth is nice, it's really nice, like, I like it. Do you like it? I made it for you, right? So, so he's not asking us to walk around miserable being like, I am crucifying myself right now. No, the crucifixion comes in only when our will is in opposition to what is right. Okay, and then what St. Paul is giving as guidelines is saying, try in your decisions to be other oriented, to live as God does. So when you're making a decision, don't just think about um, how much it's going to be awesome for you. So, for example, you may have um, a parent who is elderly and needs care. Okay, Um, a lot of people are in this situation. And so they might have a job offer that says, oh, do you want to go to Tanzania for four years? So for one person, that's an easy decision because they they're not in that situation. They don't have many ties. Like, cool, this is great professionally. Doesn't affect almost anybody. It's good for me, blah, well, blah, blah. Cool, go, have fun, sick buzz. But there's another person who's like, I don't know because um, I don't know that there's going to be anybody here to help actually care for my parents, right? Um, so that's what I mean is like, it's when there's a conflict that I need to think about that crucifixion. And we're not all going to be perfect, myself very much, myself, not inclu- myself included. We're not always good at crucifying our will, right? But as long as we start developing that mindset, we start getting better and better and better at it. Having said that, what St. Paul hasn't said yet, or he might have, and then wasn't spending much time on it, is that God says... Whoever is laying down his life, right, whoever is crucifying him or herself, I'm going to hook them up, not just in heaven, but here, right? Like he actually explicitly says, no, 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 I'm not just saying when you die, I'm going to give you all this good stuff. He's saying, no, no, right here, I'm going to hook you up because you're not living for yourself. I, I show as God solidarity with those who have done this. Um, in loving people who are not close to the church or God, we can get lost and be more like them. Should we set stricter boundaries to protect to protect ourselves? Um, I would say, yeah, if that boundary is rocked. That's the beauty of St. Paul, right? Is that St. Paul is not saying, here's a rule, don't talk to outsiders, right? Like even in, the, even in the analogy he gave, he was like, when you're invited by a friend who's a non-believer and you go, right? He started the premise that you're going, not that you're not going right and earlier in the same epistle right he was like in my previous letter you guys seem to think that i was saying divorce yourself from bad people that are outside the church right that was in the very beginning chapter one or two and he's like of course i don't mean that if i said that you would never be able to go out in public (laughs) because i was talking about in the church right so dealing with non-believers even if they have wrong behaviors no we're allowed to um there's no rule against not where the self-honesty comes in is how am i affected how am I affected? And also, does it build me up and the community, right? Because um, I also am a part of a community. So does my participation, whatever I'm doing, affect my behavior? That's not just bad for me, but also for other people. That's one, right? Um, and and another thing to to consider would be about this is actually a selfish one, but a good selfish one. Of but will you be fed? Right? Like like for example. I think it's a priceless treasure for me. There's a couple of priests in the city that I live in that I'm able to be myself around completely, right? I'm allowed to be a human being. And because we share the common values, we can help build each other up when we're down, right? Or like if I complain too much, someone's going to call me out in the right way. But my point is that because we have common values, they can help me right? But if they don't have common values, when I need the person to say no, or I need the person to help me with my will, because I'm struggling with my will, when they don't have common values, it's way harder, right? Way harder, because to them, it's like, what's the problem? It's not a big deal, right? Where it's like, But it, it, it is to me. Um, and that's where it also might be helpful. Um, If someone says something that's passive-aggressive or put down, what's the response that is okay? So the gospel says, "What you can handle, handle, right? So without saying anything. So if I can handle being slapped, turn the other cheek, right? The gospel is saying, to the point of death, let people have what they want. Most of us aren't there yet. And that's not an excusing. I'm just being real. Most of us are not there yet. And so we have to try and respond without sinning right so for example the Lord sets an example um, when he slapped across the face um, some of the fathers commentate that um, the Lord likely was referring to him specifically because he knew him from the temple because he had actually attended the talks so when the when the priests servant slaps the lord the lord looks at him and says you were with me in the temple and you heard everything that i said for which of those things are you now slapping me right so our lord actually responded but he didn't say anything mean he didn't put him down he didn't insult him he didn't tell him he was worthless he didn't tell him how messed up he he didn't anything he asked an objective question right so what I do personally this is not i I'm not by no means a standard of the gospel Um, for me sometimes if I see that somebody's being passive aggressive I usually understand that there's something that's upsetting them that's behind it Um, so sometimes if there's enough comfort I'll I'll draw attention to it and say I get the impression that you're upset the way that you're speaking Um, if I'm if I'm misinterpreting you please let me know but I'm getting the impression that Um, that you're upset. I I took this as being passive aggressive, to be honest with you. Um, have I upset you? Um, is there something that I, that I did or that I said that's upset you? Um, because if so, I'd like to apologize because I didn't mean to upset you. Right. Um, because you're, you're, you're coming at it with the humility of the gospel. So it's still a crucifying. It's just not at the highest level, right? The highest level would be just to completely take it. Right. And so a lower level would be to say, I'm I'm sorry if I've done something wrong. And that might even make the person in front of me be like, no, I'm just having a bad day. Right. And be like, oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Right. And then you end up being a source of comfort instead of a source of annoyance. Um, so that's um, that's another way. Um, if you can lighten the mood, it's an even better way. Don't even draw attention to it. And you can make everybody smile and laugh. That's awesome. Um, how do you deal with members in service? Um. By by the way, anybody who wants to bazzons, like go for it. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it a night at, um. If if we don't run out of, if we haven't run out of questions by then at seven Cali time at uh, ten Eastern. Um. How do you deal with members in service who demand things being done a specific way, without consulting members of that service? So cruciform living. If you want perfection, okay. The spiritual God is important for talking about what does perfection look like, and then helping you with where you're at. And I and, and like and me like we're all we're like we're all not at the perfection stage. Okay, so perfection would be like let them, just let them. Right, that's exactly what the Lord did. The Lord let them do whatever. The only place that our Lord put His foot down ever was on point of truth, absolute truth. Every else was laid down. You want to kill me? Kill me. Literally. You want to insult me? Insult me. You want to trash talk me? Trash talk me. Right? They were correcting him about the gospel or the temple. And then like the Lord could have been like, yeah, those are mine. Right? He didn't. So he just, he left it alone. Okay. So that's number, number one. Perfection. Let them. If there's an intersection with their will and yours, step one is let them have it if you can, if it's not objectively wrong, right? Never to do wrong in the name of of the gospel, okay? But, okay, you're not able to do that? Draw attention to it with peace, right? Of just saying, um, uh, is there a way of potentially communicating this more effectively? I was under the impression based on, and make sure it's based on something objective, that this was being done in this way. I was under the um, impression, and don't be passive aggressive yourself, right? Like be, be actually meek and gentle about it, right? I thought that this was how we were approaching it. Um, I don't have a problem with it being done another way. Um, I think I'm just a little bit caught off guard because I, um, I thought this was a group discu- decision and, and it doesn't seem to be anymore. Right. The more people seek truth instead of their emotions, the easier it is to deal with problems because in saying that you haven't said anything personal, right? You just said, I thought this is what it was and I may even be wrong in my thinking. I thought the system was this. You haven't attacked anybody, right? You haven't said you did this and this and this and this and this, you made this decision without asking you. Like once you start getting that language, everybody goes into self-defense mode, right? Whereas if instead you just say, this is um, what I thought, is there this? And then be real with, with, with guidance about what you can handle and not. Because if the norm is always haphazard and you don't have the skill set to deal with that, no problem. Like we talked about in the early example, if you uh, if you were to need to walk away, it would be to say, because I do not have the virtue that goes with this scenario. I lack it, not they're bad, Right. That way, everything is, 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 more, is more peaceful um, with um, what you do. Um, why exactly is gratitude so important in our spiritual lives? Why do we thank God for our negative, desirable circumstance? Um, so gratitude in general, before that thing, is important because gratitude is a sign of the opposite of entitlement. That I'm not do anything right and it's really important for us to realize that because i think our culture functions on the opposite which is exactly what the chapters were about right of i have rights lay them down the gospel of 21st century is you have rights take them right it's completely counter gospel and so gratitude is so important so that we can realize that when we thank god for um a negative situation um we're not we're not, first of all, hopefully, suggesting that God did something wrong. I, I hope not, because if, if God could do wrong, we have a problem. Um, but we are, we are saying that no matter where we're at, no matter how crummy it is, we're okay, and we're thankful for that. Right? That no matter what situation I'm in, God is mine and I'm God's. I'm my beloved's and he is mine. Right. It's actually very romantic. Right. It's almost like a couple going through a really difficult time where they're in a financial crisis and they're living off of like canned beans. And then each looking to the other and saying, I'm grateful for you. I'm glad we're here together. That's the tone of it. Um, It's not a pretending that we like poverty, right? It's not a pretending that the situation is better than it is. We're not doing that. We're just being in a state of of gratitude. I hope that clarifies a little bit. Um, Let's say you deny weed before your friends to try to live the gospel and then do it at home or relax because it's something that God created. Aren't you being hypocritical? Of course you are. Because if you're doing it at home because you're saying it's something that God created, then what you're really saying is there's nothing wrong with this. Meanwhile, you told your friends that it was wrong, right? So yeah, that's definitely hypocritical. It's either wrong or it's not wrong, wherever you do it, right? So I don't think it's wrong for somebody to say that something's wrong and still struggle with it, as long as when they're struggling, they're not pretending it's right, right? So for example, I might say cussing is wrong, and then I slip and I cuss. That doesn't mean that if I cuss that I'm suddenly saying, oh, no, no, but cussing for me is okay. Right, or that in this situation cussing was good. No. Right? It's either it's okay or it's not okay. Um, and that I might fall short of that right standard, okay, but that I can't pretend something. And once I get in the business of pretending, then of course everyone's gonna call me out um on my inconsistency, and 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 rightfully so. Um, how does your description of self-accusation I just moved, Uh, differ from self-reflection, or it's the same thing. I would say that self-accusation is one subtitle under the category of self-reflection. But I think that self-accusation can be its own thing. Because self-reflection doesn't always necessarily mean just pointing things at yourself. Self-reflection can just be like thinking about stuff, meditating on stuff, reflecting on meaning. um, And it may or may not include accusation. Um, So I'm just saying to make sure that you actively include Um, the accusation especially when you're judging people in general like as a a rule for all of us one of the first and that's one of the contexts that saint dorotheos gives is especially when you're judging people be quick to self-accuse because probably you do the thing you're judging Um, are there ways to address the will of a friend who goes against the truth Um, what ways are we able to go against the will without seeming to be selfish. It depends on the depends on the relationship and strength that you have with with the friend, I think. Um like I have friends um that I can accept being more aggressive with me than others, like like honestly. Um and vice versa, like that I can say it to um and not others. And that's not about that's not necessarily a sign of the strength of the friendship. It's just different personality traits. Um, because we're all very different in how much we can take or not handle. So I can't speak absolutely on this topic. W- one thing that I do, although I sometimes come off a bit cold and I have to work on that because I don't mean to be cold, um, is, um, is challenging people to the objectivity of, of the behavior, right? Of, of helping them see that what they're doing isn't right? Now, you're going to say, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. That's what I'm asking about. What I mean is to use the word right is to suggest that there is something called right. Okay? And so once you're using that language, that's the ground for the discussion. Because if the other person is defending something as not being wrong, then the question becomes, well, then what do you believe is right? Because if you believe that this is right, then what does it mean to not do it? So you might help them see where they're like, you might be able to move them from step one, from where they are to step one of being like, okay, maybe I can agree that it's wrong, but I'm not able to stop yet, right? But that's progress. At least they've made the recognition that it isn't right. that's one thing. The other thing is, is, is more of a passive way of trying to make sure that the scenarios never arise where it can happen. Because in so doing, it's not just an evasive thing. You're showing them that they can have pleasure and joy without doing something wrong. right? A lot of people forget that. Right, like when they're like, oh my gosh, trying to stop this thing? I'm never gonna have fun again. And like often I'll ask them like, have you never in your life had fun before that moment? Like actually? Because if so, then I'm sad for you, like that sucks. I haven't met anybody who, who said no, right? And so it's like, okay, so then you are aware that you are quite capable of having fun not doing that specific activity. So then let's talk about what is the real reason that you insist on this activity because it's not just fun at this point. Cause it's just fun. Then there's a whole lot of other things. Right? So I, I, I get annoying with people because to me, it always just has to come back to truth. The question always has to come back to, to the, to the truth. I'm sorry if that wasn't too, uh, too helpful. Um, when it comes to difficult decisions where we are called to choose truth, um, how do we make sound judgment calls? we are inherently limited by our finite human minds question i sometimes struggle with the idea of choosing truth or claiming to fully know truth because while we can all agree it is an ontological reality that exists outside of our means of knowing our means of interpreting truth can be often flawed agreed while we can turn to scripture patristic text special guidance and prayer above all else i feel that there is uh, some sort of pride involved in claiming to know what truth is in all circumstances where does subjectivity and context come into play? There's something that I often think would um, about. So would love to hear input on. No problem. That's a great, great, great question. Um, so what I say is that where we do know the absolutes using all of what you described, which is awesome. So thank you for that. It cut out like a whole bunch of my own rambling. So if you take all of those things into account you said, to me what those do is they, perf- they form the perimeter of the discussion so that I don't become presumptuous, like you said, because that is a very real risk um, about, about being opinionated. Right? Of being able to say, OK, I know this absolute, I know this absolute, I know this one and this one. Um, and so now I have this circle. And so there is, with guidance, what we're doing in those circumstances is we're, we're playing in, that, in this area in between the, cir- the circumference. And you might make mistakes, no problem. No problem. Because you weren't doing it presumptuously. You weren't doing it because you were adamant on something. You weren't doing it because you knew something and denied it. You weren't doing it because you didn't care about truth. You were being honest and sincere and genuine in your pursuit of truth. So, no, that's fine. No harm in that. because So, you might end up even in that discovering an absolute truth that you weren't aware of. No problem. It just becomes a lesson. Right? Because you weren't... You weren't hostile to truth, right? You weren't, you weren't being presumptuous. And so there is a subjective element, there is, to navigation of behavior, right? And that's actually exactly what St. Paul is talking about in this chapter, right? Where St. Paul is saying, no, I'd rather tell you how to think, the how, rather than the what, right? Because he's saying, on the one hand, you can eat this dish, and on the other hand, you can't. And there's no contradiction there. Because he went by the principle. Um, so form your circumferences. Um, it's uh, the circumscription and its truest strength. That's what it means. Like when we call God the uncircumscript logos, it's saying there's something, no circumscription can be made around him. So in these kind of things, we say form your circumference, form, form that, work within it, and don't be afraid. You'll learn and experience. The Holy Spirit will guide you right even if you make a mistake it'll be worked towards your good you won't even have to, to fear i hope that uh, that that answered that that's an awesome 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 uh, all of these were really great questions that was the last of them thanks guys um we will end in prayer and then bazaun's the name of the father son and the holy spirit one god i'm ask the lord to hear us through intercessions and prayers of holy mother the Theotoko, saint mary the great saint anthony saint pope cordless and very mean and pray all thanksgiving our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those dreams and not not temptation from evil one Christ Jesus our Lord for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. amen love of God the Father grace of God and Son the kingdom is with you all go in peace the peace of the Lord with you all thanks guys good night everyone